God, those communists are amazing. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Cousin Comrades podcast. I'm Mike, he, him. And tonight I am here with Brandon, he, him, Brian, he, him, Connor, he, him, and Zach, he, him. So, again, we're picking back up with our Walter Ruther discussion. And this is going to be part six of however many parts it's going to take us. We have given up on trying to determine the end point. It's just going to go on as long as it takes. But that's what Congrats we're Congrats for so. anyone who made it this far. If you've seen this pop up on your feed and been like, okay, and you actually hit play, congrats. You did it. <laughs> I mean, I've had a good response from the comments in the Discord. So uh, it's not like we're just wanking to ourselves here. Like somebody's enjoying it at least. So. <laughs> I've talked to at least a couple of people who started listening to our show because they heard us recording with you guys. So that's pretty cool. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Uh, one of them, my, my, Mike, was actually the, the fellow that you put me in touch with because he is an IOTC comrade. And I've uh, mm-hmm. been talking to that dude a good bit. So... Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's nice. Cool, cool guy. I, I almost was able to link up with him when I was down in Georgia, but uh, some tragic shit happened and I was not able to. Hmm. Still, though, that's good to hear. Yeah, real life connections. You guys will probably actually turn a few people into cars, unfortunately, which will uh, be like a carbon footprint negative. But uh, eh, what are you going to do? Personal consumption, right? Yeah, so. personal carbon footprint is a lie made up by me. So <laughs> fuck it. <laughs> Did you say by Pete Buttigieg? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, PB. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, as I said, I will hand it off to you, Connor, and we can pick back up with our discussion. Um, I don't know if you even need to give like a recap. I think if you uh, just pick back up where you left off, we will probably ask enough questions as we tend to do. And then, yeah. uh, if there's any gaps left off. But, and I, of course, people can go and check out the previous episodes. Of course, uh, I know you guys have been having some recent uh, issues with your podcast feed, so everybody just got their episodes refreshed into the podcast feed so yeah check it out if you haven't already yeah you have no excuse that was an adventure uh i'll say um <laughs> it took yeah. me like about eight hours of work to get all the archives put back on the new hosting <laughs> and uh yeah they're a little out of order so sorry about that um yeah, yeah. no we've been we were there. assured that this would not happen right from our old hosting service <laughs> oh, it, it was supposed would. to be a smooth transition and then the day they yep. shut down we had some fucking problems <laughs> Yeah, so um, we're calling calling you out, Chris Hayes from Shout Engine, uh, not the MSNBC guy, the other guy. Um, but I mean, fuck that other guy too. Fuck <laughs> all. Um, and it was kind of funny when we switched to the new hosting. The first download that we had was from the DC area, so uh, maybe the feds are watching us. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be honored, honestly. They're actually listening. That's great. Yeah. So yes, we're, we're on a list. The question is, are we on a list that they listen to the episodes or are we on a list of like, that's a problem? Which one is it? Yeah. So if you're in the FBI and you're listening, uh, quit your job, get a real job. <laughs> I don't yeah. know what else. <laughs> work for the PLA. Female body inspector is not a real job, you <laughs> asshole. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right. Well, uh, anyway, yeah, so our feed was screwy. Sorry about that, folks. But, uh, you know, it should be back to normal-ish. So, uh, anyway, so in in previous episodes, I know it's been a couple episodes since I've done this, so I'm going to do it again real quick. Um, Mentioning sort of these questions that I've kind of floated around uh, while going through this study. I think there's a few that are uh, relevant today, of course, as always. So I wanted to just run through those real quick because I think it has been a few episodes now. But once again, how should we think about the dynamic between getting power within the capitalist system 
and building movements outside the centers of power? Is having influence with presidents and politicians actually worth anything? That's going to be uh, real relevant today. Real relevant. <laughs> How should we think about political education for union membership? Is it better to have larger unions or kind of more radical members or some mix in between? We're going to talk about political education. Maybe we should also delve into political re-education. Uh, yeah. Yes. It, something that will, in some fashion, be required at some point. Undoubtedly. Brandon, who are you, me? <laughs> I mean, I talked to enough conservatives. I'm like, Oof. something's yep. going to have to be done there. <laughs> it's going to be a big old mess to clean up off that wall. <laughs> so... What, uh, what alternatives might exist to the kind of political engagement we saw from unions in the 20th century? A separate workers' party, refusal to engage in electoral politics entirely. What could be done in the 21st century, assuming unions regain some kind of power? And how, how should we think about the very real pressure placed on unions by the global capitalist system? Uh, since capital can move abroad and workers can't, and competition is undeniably global between workers and businesses, Unions seem to be in an ever-weakening position by default. How should we address these realities in the future? So, like, kind of a perfect example of this is, like, Japanese car makers were non-union at the time. And when they started entering into the American market, really hurt uh, UAW workers. I mean, just really was, you know, completely damaging. And, and I didn't look into it yet, but one of those questions would be, like, maybe some international organizing efforts would have headed that problem off a lot fucking sooner. But anyway, something to think about. Uh, then my last question here is, uh, how should we think about legality in future labor struggles? If the game is rigged by ruling the ruling class and lawmakers, can anything be actually gained by playing by their rules? What alternatives might exist and what are the costs of abandoning past notions of legality? So anyway, I just want to list those up top because I know a lot of this stuff is going to be relevant for the labor struggles of the 21st century. And like, I'm too stupid to figure this stuff out. But like, maybe there's someone listening who is much smarter than myself who can save us all. We're all depending it's on a group you. Effort. <laughs> so we'll be picking back up our story right at about the 1960s. So. In our last episode, we talked a lot about Walter's rise after World War II and kind of what happened in the wake of the Taft-Hartley Act and the merger of AFL-CIO um, and all of that stuff. And Walter pretty much at that point made a decision about where to take the labor movement and how to get politically engaged and what that political engagement was going to look like. So the 1960s is pretty much where we see if that direction was correct and what we've gained by following that path and you know spoiler not that much but you know it's important to look at <laughs> so so first here um i've got we're going to talk a little bit about walter's involvement with specifically the democratic party because that was like we know that in the past we've seen like some democrats not all but some democrats have felt beholden to labor in some way, shape, or form. So in some of those cases, it was important to have their support. They were in control of National Guard, or they could choose whether to enforce legal injunctions or not. And that kind of stuff did play a role at some point 
but it wasn't because like there was engagement in electoral politics per se. It was more, it, it was a little bit different. The tables were turned in such a way that the Democrats wanted something from labor and the labor didn't necessarily, they were in the stronger position. So there was some value there that will not always be the case. And we can kind of see that today a lot. So after the passage of the Taft-Hartley Act, union activity became severely limited, as we previously discussed. Uh, and so unions began trying to influence mainstream politics more than they had in the past. They wanted to use this political power to improve the lives of working people and to help preserve their own existence. The uh, natural choice at the time was to align themselves with the Democratic Party, uh, where they had received some support in the 1930s and 40s. Walter had always been politically involved and very well connected because of his organizing. There was a time when some portion of Democrats were somewhat beholden to organized labor, so pursuing greater influence in this sphere seemed like a reasonable course of action, a sentiment shared by many in the labor movement at the time. There was obviously some shortcomings with the strategy, though. The main issue seemed to be an imbalance in the terms of this unwritten agreement. Getting more involved in politics took a few different forms. Walter wanted organized labor to be able to have influence over legislation and a mainstream platform to push their agenda. This included the opportunity to speak at congressional committee hearings to make their case when they could coordinate with their Democratic allies. So we've seen this, can you, you can see this today. There's some subcommittee somewhere having some kind of, you know, hearing on this or that thing. Sometimes it's meaningful, sometimes it's not. So we can see the right does this to great effect with like Benghazi hearings. They use those, yeah, right. they just use those to bring out their fucking allies to just pontificate about shit and they change the narrative and they push public opinion in that way. At this time, Democrats could do the same thing. And that was one of the benefits that unions got was, okay, we'll, we'll work with the Democrats. They'll bring us in front of this uh, congressional hearing. It feels very official and important and there's cameras on us. We can now make our case to American people because if the bosses had their way, we would never hear from union leaders ever. So there was some real utility there. Any gains they could make for working class people through electoral politics would allow unions to negotiate from a stronger position. Right. So this is kind of the idea of like, as we get workers into a better position, they can ask for more, which, you know, sometimes can make workers complacent. But sometimes if with the right kind of organizing behind it, you can still actually just negotiate from a stronger and stronger position. And that's obviously the goal. Now, in exchange for this influence and platform, the unions would organize to support Democratic political campaigns. They were also helping to fund Democrats. They did this using uh, political action committees, or as we know them today, PACs. Obviously, there were some limits on campaign contributions, so the unions used PACs, just as PACs are used today, for political campaigns. And endorsements from union bosses like Walter uh, were extremely valuable to Democratic politicians. Getting an endorsement from Walter could get 80% of UAW members to vote for a candidate, and that effect was multiplied for all the working people who heard the news. So it wasn't just about getting the votes for union membership. By this time, Walter is a national figure. He's a household name, which is weird because we don't hear about him today. But at this time, Funny how that works. <laughs> yeah, so in some ways, Walter was ineffective, but in other ways, 
there's a reason he was erased from history. And it's, it was all the good stuff he did, not the bad stuff. At one point, he was also erased from the present. <laughs> yeah. So part of it was Walter was a national figure. And so people actually really watched to see where his endorsements were going to go. If you were a friend of Walter, you were going to get votes from people in even unrelated unions or people who just respected unions or came from families where they had a lot of union workers, right? So that, you know, and UAW members would um, convince their families and friends also to vote in interest of the union. This is back when unions had real fucking power and like, that's how it, that's how they used it. So for a Democrat to get Walter's endorsement, it, it was kind of a big fucking deal. So they were willing to, you know, play ball and give Walter a few things that he wanted to get that kind of an endorsement. Now, this might be a good arrangement if there wasn't a fundamental imbalance between who could deliver on their promises. You see, there's nothing to stop the union from giving money or organizing get-out-the-vote campaigns or giving endorsements. They have full ability to provide that. Democratic politicians, on the other hand, can't deliver so easily. They always have excuses, both genuine and artificial. There's no shortage of Republicans or bad polls or bad timing or complicated processes or delays on delays or the rest of the party not going along. Should sound pretty familiar. Or some parliamentarian or whatever they call it now. <laughs> Correct. Donna, you're being... They're being too generous even with those excuses. Like they bargain before they even get to the table. <laughs> they just they just before they even get to the point of having to make those excuses, they just say this is unrealistic and then they bargain it down before that. Well, and then well, the remember, Republicans reject it anyway. This is a different time. So this is the time when they actually use those excuses. We're at a time where right. they don't even give us get to those excuses. They're just like, no, that's mm. no, we're not even gonna fucking fuck with that. <laughs> nah, come back with less. Then we'll then we'll talk. So yeah. It, it's gotten bad. It was bad then. It's worse now. I mean, and so just with the the brief kind of introduction that you've done so far, I think one of the big takeaways if, if people are going to relate to this, just the dismantling of the Democratic Party over the last few decades is that union membership was a major voting block for them that they could yep. depend on and that they needed to make concessions for. And now because so few people are in unions, that it's not something that you can count on. And it's this vicious cycle of unions dismantling the democratic party losing a base and worker working class people not getting anything ever i, I do want to say because I, I feel like i'm the optimist on the show here in general uh that 2021 i think I, I saw that it was the highest increase in union membership in the u.s in like fucking decades so keep it up america yeah i mean the fucking longest awaited pendulum swing ever <laughs> yeah like, yeah i think you know one of the things to keep in mind is just you can deal with electoral politics here and there. I don't, you know, in limited ways to get pro-union legislation might be a worthwhile thing. The problem is what a lot of people don't fully understand is that there's just in, an imbalance between what people deliver, what unions can deliver and what Democrats can deliver because Democrats always have these fucking excuses. So like, there's always something stopping them, but like, there's nothing to stop the UAW from pledging tens of thousands of dollars to a campaign. They can just do that. They write a check and it's done. It's not like there's some Republican banker who's like, I'm not going to cash that check unless you make a law for XYZ. 
So like there's on one side, you have people who can do what they promise very easily without any question. And then people who can not do that or choose not to and have excuses, whatever the case may be. That is a fundamental difference. And I don't think there's even some quote unquote leftists who don't get that today. And I don't think there's a lot of unions who get that today and they didn't get it then. And that's kind of what led to unions not being a political force anymore. And I think, I think that misunderstanding was essentially just an error in strategy. And that strategy was partially thought up by Walter. Yeah. So anyway, the, um, all these fucking reasons they've got the point of that all being is there's always a reason that the Democrats did not need to deliver. Uh, the unions could always hold up their end of the bargain, but the Democrats could not. So through this process, the democratic party managed to completely flip the old paradigm. Instead of Democrats being beholden to labor, labor had instead become beholden to Democrats. By the time this problem presented itself, the unions had already made the investment. They tied themselves to the Democratic Party. They had convinced their members to go along with them, and it wasn't so easy to take it back. There was never any plan to withdraw their support if the Democrats didn't deliver. Maybe they were just fooled like most liberals are today. That's not too far-fetched. Or maybe they saw what had happened and couldn't change course. I don't know the answer, but we can see today that unions are now hopelessly beholden to Democrats and for literally nothing in return. Yes. Yeah, so pretty dark. I want to like sarcastically defend Democrats, and I can't even fucking think of a way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so I think it's it's important to understand that it was like there was some utility to maybe, you know, working with within electoral politics, you know. At certain times, that may be necessary or possible. But if there's no plan to like withdraw your support, or if there's no demands for like actually getting shit done, you can have this effect where the unions had made the initial investment, they got all their members on board with it. How do you take that back? Oh, sorry. It's a very good and long standing argument for why you should participate in bourgeois elections. Uh, and it's uh, very simply to. Prove the inefficacy of bourgeois elections. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. It it does it does help to radicalize people, I will say that. So you can see how it's ineffective. I was thinking earlier today that um inevitably when people pressure me in twenty twenty four to vote for Biden to prevent Trump getting reelected because he's also <laughs> inevitably going to run again. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to tell them I'm going to vote for the lesser of two evils, which means I'm going to vote for the Green Party because they're less evil than whatever Joe Biden did for the last four years. So, yep. Off. Yep. I'm just going to point out that the sequel to Weekend at Bernie sucked too. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that joke lands. I just, I think of, every time I think of the election of Biden, I think of Weekend at Bernie's because he's just obviously a walking corpse. <laughs> but you know what? I will say, like, I didn't think that they were going to be able to sustain what because I thought that like whatever drug that gave him for the debates to like really yeah, I remember that keep his his it's like you can tell they're giving him some kind of stimulant because you can see him in like in normal interviews like when they haven't given it to him and then they shock him with something like I don't know if they injected or what but like they have something and yeah that's the real fucking conspiracy like if you're worried about what the cabal and the elites are doing like the fact that they have this thing that they can fix your grandpa for you and like make him remember who you are and they're not giving it to you 
that's the real 5g bill gates chip right there like you you want that chip like give me that chip for when i get older like uh, yeah. yeah how, how, how long does he have till his brain just explodes you know <laughs> it'll never explode it'll just start leaking out of his ears <laughs> yeah i don't know maybe he maybe he made a deal with the devil or something but like i don't know he was bad in the campaign he was a lot worse and now you can tell night and day it's by the hour. It was as soon as they put him up against Bernie. Yeah. As soon as I they put that. him up against Bernie, he was like golden. I was like, where is this? Where has this Joe Biden been? And then and then when they put him once they got rid of Bernie, then they gave it to him a couple more times to debate Trump. And he was coherent. He was like all of a sudden he was Joe Biden from like 30 years ago. It's like just in an old body. And then he wins. And then they've been like tapering it off. They don't give him the dose that they gave him back then for sure. Yeah. But you can tell they're still dosing him every time he gets in front of the camera for any kind of serious issue. To tell us that he's doing nothing about COVID. <laughs> like, he, they dose him up pretty He's got to be like, coherent when he tells us he's not going to do shit. <laughs> yeah, as in, yeah. like, <laughs> I had very low expectations of him, obviously. I know. But I am still astounded by how far he's fallen even from those. Oh. It's amazing. And I, I, try, I really don't see too many liberals anymore. I actually, I see more conservative thought than I ever do from liberals. But when, when I catch it and they're like... They're down with Joe Biden. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? How could how? You know, what's really funny <laughs> is how made of this is going to be, because we are now recording episode six. I'm just finishing up editing episode four. And episode four is when Brandon tells us he's like, oh, I got covid. And he's like, everybody I know has covid. Like out of 12 people that I know who are at this place, 12 of them have covid. 12 of them were vaccinated. And he's like, I don't know if this is a Delta because that was still going on because we recorded that in like fucking October or something. And so you basically were calling what happened over the next three months right then because you were saying that like, yeah, nobody's doing anything. Nobody cares. Nobody's approaching this as if it's a real crisis. And we're hitting like record numbers every day and we're going into the winter and it's going to get worse because we recorded it in like fucking fall. And then you just called everything that was going to happen over the holidays and has continued. to. It's 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 prescient, man. It's great. It's yeah. almost like I'm using some sort of immortal science. <laughs> Who yeah, or you've got the lathe of heaven over there. You know, please yeah, use some of, good. Some of the people that I knew that got COVID the same time I did in October have COVID again. Lovely. Wow. Fun stuff. Which actually, uh, you bring up a good point um, because this series has been going so long and we've had a couple like somewhat longer breaks and stuff we should probably mention we are currently recording it's about mid january ish it's after the holidays so yeah yeah because i forget when we recorded all of these yeah we should it's worth mentioning yeah today's the ninth so yeah. yeah actually you know what i'll say that since this isn't going to come out for a few weeks i'm just going to preemptively say like i'm glad that things aren't as bad now as they're going to be when this episode gets released <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that's so depressing dude i'll make a riskier prediction i'll say that like at some point before the midterm biden is going to forgive a portion of student debt for pell grant recipients who open up a business <laughs> in a low-income area and have a father named keith or something <laughs> he will like he will do something enough just in time for the midterms that like neoliberals can point to it but like I'm just going to go out on a limb and say yeah, that. Yeah, I think it's really yeah. interesting that the uh, they keep pushing back that, um, like, when people need to start re uh, payments again on student loans. And right now, the, the deadline for it uh, resuming is uh, May 1st. So May Day, I don't know. That might be an interesting mm. uh, thing to happen on that day. Mm. Yeah, we'll see.
You know, like what I think is interesting, and, and this is literally like I'm not being sarcastic here. I, I don't understand how they don't understand that they're still not acting in their own best interest. It's metaphorically, it's they're they're pointing the gun at their foot and they just keep pulling the trigger and saying, I don't understand why this hurts so much. <laughs> Because, I mean, they're just so divorced from the working class, you know, like there's no, all a bunch of PMCs, you know, even specifically from the perspective of a, a devout capitalist. How can you not understand that killing your workforce and and limiting your ability to reproduce capital is not good? They have always they have always done this shit. They have always undermined themselves. But I have never but like they cannot help it. They will always undermine themselves because they, they, they don't have a choice. Like they, they're just they're so focused on like short term profits. Got to get these people back to work. Got to get them back to work. They got to make money for me. I, you're like, I have not been able to get off of the fact that China and granted, every time I fucking have a conversation, people are like, well, obviously they're lying. And I'm like, I know. cool. What are your metrics other than China? Bad. Fuck. Big cope. <laughs> yeah. You know, big if true. Uh, no, but like what China managed to prevent, uh, like even like a fraction of of the deaths that we've had. They they've they've saved so many people and had economic recovery. So yeah. how does how is the logical response to that not be like oh well maybe we should help people instead of like no no they're just fucking lying. I know. Yeah, uh, yeah it's it's really something, and it's I mean Brandon like. The reason that they are not doing it, the reason to shoot themselves in the foot is because it is algorithmic at this point. Like you're saying, Connor, they really cannot help it. They have no choice but to just do whatever is best for profit because that's what's controlling everything. But that that's my specific argument. They're only doing what is quote-unquote good for profit over a, a period of like months. If yeah, you because they're beyond I mean. like a three-month mark, term, this is devastating. Short-term is the only thing that dominates everything. There is no short... Uh, long term, yeah, they cannot think beyond short term because that's not what capitalism is able to do at all. It's just, you know, whatever the shareholders demand, and that's what runs both the the private sector and the, sorry, and the public sector at this point. And that's why China is going to continue to win because they're able to make like long term plans and actually, you know, capital has gone full carpe diem. Yeah, it's well, ridiculous. I mean, so capital. Here's the thing: capitalism has had some successes. Karl Marx pointed out what some of those are. But they've never actually been that good at making money. Like, they always got some new scheme to, like, fucking squeeze, the, you know, pennies out of people. But at the end of the day, you're like, you can't fucking plan ahead for anything. And it, it, it it's very apparent. And anyone who's had a job can see at their own workplace, like, they're doing this stupid shit that, like, doesn't make sense. Like, no matter where you um. work. Everyone can point out, like, yeah, they could make like twenty percent more money if they just didn't do this stupid ass thing that they choose to do. But they'll never fucking change it. And every company is like that. Every single one, there is room for massive improvement, and the market never seems to punish them. It's almost like markets don't work. <laughs> Blasphemy. Yeah, but I mean that—that's to me the reason you can see it um, in every company that you know. Every company I've ever worked for, I'm just like, this is fucking stupid. Like, how could you possibly be operating this way? Every single company. And they all do just fine. Yeah. That's, that is the nature of capitalism. They cannot help themselves.
I mean, Connor, I don't know if you realize the universality of what you just said, though. Like every single person listening to this has had a job, currently has a job in a company that seems like it is running on a skeleton crew, like it is running on, like just by the skin of its teeth. And you're like, how the fuck is this happening? And considered like functional. And it continues to go on and not only do that, but make tons of money. And like you will leave and the person who comes in will be like enthusiastic. It's just how it all works. It's yeah. crazy. It's it's fucked up. Yeah. It's crazy. Sorry, Brian. I totally interrupted you. No, you I was just going to say at my workplace, there's a lot of uh, sunk cost fallacy going on as far as like yep. planning stuff. You know, it's like, oh, we we bought this, you know, machine that's hundred thousand dollars. It doesn't work we better keep pouring another $100,000 into it <laughs> to make it work rather than replace it with something that actually works and is user-friendly and doesn't fuck up all the time and doesn't need to be repaired and whatnot. So, yeah, fun stuff. Yeah. But, like, even that, you can go, it's a, it's literally a known logical fallacy. It's, it's written out. There, people have written books on yeah. this shit, and yet they'll just keep doing it. They'll fall into the same trap every time. Connor. Connor, are you telling me that capitalism doesn't operate by what is actually optimal and what like <laughs> logic and science tells it should do, and what is and it's actually dominated by the just the the whims and wills of the rich and the elites? Like no way. <laughs> Come on. Capitalism is operating on the same principle that I use when I blow up the motor in a van that's already worth a thousand dollars. Oh, I suddenly became very familiar with the mindset. <laughs> Um, okay, well, that's a great segue into uh, Walter's involvement with uh, John F. Kennedy. Is is he a thousand dollar fan with a blonde motor? Thank you. Or? I was going to say, please get us back on the rail. <laughs> yes, <Thank> yes, <laughs> that specifically brought us back. So, through the Ruthers' involvement in politics, they came into contact with the Kennedy family on a not too infrequent basis. Given their largely shared vision for helping working class people, they were on the same side of many fights and developed pretty strong personal friendships. Walter was considered as a possible running mate for John F. Kennedy in 1960, actually. But there was a small issue with that. Walter's reputation as a socialist and possible communist, according to the right, and union organizer was seen as a problem. Why wouldn't it be? He spoke too clearly on class issues. He wasn't kind to capital. He was the boss's boy from the perspective of the communists, but he was a communist from the perspective of capital. This was already known, though. Walter didn't hide his socialist class agenda. So why wasn't Walter president of the United States? And the answer to that is J. Edgar Hoover, our favorite villain. We know that Hoover... I thought you were going to say it was because he was Irish and they weren't <laughs> technically white yet. <laughs> <laughs> that might may have been, you know, some part of it, but probably not too much. So, sorry, I'm just uh, I'm just imagining Walter Ruther as uh, LBJ, like uh, showing his dick to journalists and like getting drunk and driving his amphicar into a lake and all the shenan shenanigans that he got up to back in the day. Uh, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. No, J. Edgar Hoover was always interested in Walter Ruther. And it was his personal mission to always stop Walter from achieving whatever he could. Uh, and he had a special trick up his sleeve. See, J. Edgar Hoover had a doctored letter that seemed to suggest that Walter and Victor were supportive of the Soviet Union when they spent time working in the Gorky plant in the early 30s. So remember, that was part of that, like, world trip they took. And they spent a couple years working in that plant in Russia where Walter got cold. And so, therefore, communism doesn't work. So during that time, they had written home on a fairly regular basis, 
And because the FBI was interested in all things socialist and communist, they got their hands on one of these letters. Of course, the law enforcement community has no interest in things like truth, so they doctored the letter. The original had been signed, Carry On the Fight, and signed, Vic and Wall. The doctored version was signed, Carry On the Fight for a Soviet America, signed, Vic and Wall. Based. Which, yeah, (laughs) would have been based. (laughs) Um, But of course, this was you know, a problem for someone who has political ambitions and kind of what we had talked about in, I think it was the last episode where Walter pointed out to Victor who had exposed CIA bullshit in their Latin American AFL CIO affiliated unions. And Walter pointed out to Victor that, Hey, you're, you're, you're trying to mess with a, an organization that can forge any document to prove that we're liars So he was very aware of what they could do. Uh, And in this case, the FBI had done pretty much exactly that. What did that even mean back then? Like they were, they had like unlimited access to typewriter technology. I mean, sure. I mean, they just took the letter that was already written and added a few words. Like that's not some like amazing forgery. Oh, it's not, but it's good enough. I mean, it got the job done. I think it's a combination of having access to all the peak technology available at any given era because you just are the government, but then also having the legitimacy of saying like, oh, here's the official letter, like whatever Walter Ruth himself provides is a fake. Like we're the government, like we know better. Yeah, all all they have to do is, and, and by this time, like the FBI was trusted. Law enforcement at this time was relatively trusted. I don't know why it should, I mean, at no point should it have been trusted, but it was because Americans are gullible and have been subjected to serious propaganda. And so, yeah, the FBI had a letter that maybe a lot of the people who saw this letter may not have even believed it, but their constituents might. Oh, and that's the problem with trying to engage with people who are up for election by ostensibly uncritical, uneducated people. What are, you, what are you supposed to fucking do? So that forged letter had been floated around before. It, it had been sent to politicians that were involved with Walter to make sure they didn't want to get too involved. Uh, it prevented Walter from getting appointed to countless commissions and boards and various appointments. This doctored letter was very effective in limiting the levers of power that Walter actually had access to. So at that time, of course, after McCarthyism and everything being a communist was a problem. So if the FBI had a letter that seemed to suggest that you were at any point in time a communist, that was that was it. You were done in politics. So, wonderful world we live in. It's like uh there was that guy that was um oh shoot. I I should probably know this, but uh before I talk, but there was um someone that was going to be in Carter's administration either as the vi- vice president or the somewhere in the cabinet and um he got you know eliminated from the the uh running because he had either like smoked weed once or uh had been like under treatment for mental illness once like it, <laughs> yeah. it was like you know 10 years before or whatever and it's like oh this guy is not capable of leadership we'd better get him the fuck out of here 
Like, Note to on. self, do not get involved with Carter administration. <laughs> I think you're safe on that one. <laughs> yeah, any little thing was a political problem or was perceived as a political problem. And I think that's an important distinction is like, I don't know. What if we had just been like, yo, yeah, I'm a communist. Fuck it, whatever. I'm a communist. Maybe if we weren't trying to apologize for our fucking beliefs all the time, we wouldn't be in such a predicament. Back to uh, serious stuff now. So it, it it's a little bit funny to think about like the fact that that letter is a big part of the reason that Walter Ruther was not the vice president of the United States. And spoiler, if you know what happened to Mr. John F. Kennedy, this is why Walter Ruther is not was not the president. Wait, what happened? Yeah, he lived right? happily ever after. Okay? Everyone, everyone was good. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure, uh, you know, in his, whatever his dying brain experienced was probably happily ever after, but I don't know. I heard he's in, uh, he's back in Dallas um, trying to stop the steal and um, free the children. No, that was his kid, apparently. For some uh, reason, that was his kid. <laughs> yeah, Elvis is there. Michael Jackson is there. <laughs> They're all back. Bigfoot, too, I'm sure. <laughs> So it's funny to think about, but if Walter had been JFK's vice president, it's possible that it would have prevented the assassination of JFK, of course, because Walter would have been seen as a greater threat by anyone who wanted Kennedy dead. So kind of funny to think about. Now, Kennedy uh, turned to Walter for anything he could, though, um, that wouldn't create too many waves. Um, So, for example, he asked Walter to look into... Uh, right-wing infiltration into military and law enforcement. Sound familiar? No. Yeah. Yeah, you'll uh, you'll never guess what they found. <laughs> so, yeah, that was an issue back then. They looked into it, and yeah, still dealing with it today. No one took that. They were like, no, it's not a problem. They just are the law enforcement. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah, and then, so Kennedy also actually sent Walter as part of a delegation to Cuba in 1961, um, he was there to negotiate a prisoner release after the failed Bay of Pigs invasion with Fidel Castro. Low uh, <laughs> owned. <laughs> yeah. Now, of course, right wing criticism of negotiating with an enemy nation kept them from making any real progress, though. So um, I didn't look into it much further than that. But yeah, he was tasked with going and negotiating with Fidel Castro and whatever. It didn't work. You know, king negotiator over here who was, by all accounts, a good negotiator. <laughs> Just didn't didn't work. Also, along those notes, I didn't know where to put this in my notes. So I'm like just shoehorning it the fuck in right now. It's a little bit pre Kennedy, but fuck it, whatever. In 1959, at the request of the United States Department of State, Ruther met with Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev to discuss, among other things, capitalism versus communism, organized labor and U.S.-Russia relations. Uh, The meeting happened in San Francisco at the Mark Hopkins Hotel and was front page international news. Later, when Khrushchev met with President Kennedy at the uh, Vienna summit in 1961, he told Kennedy, we hung the likes of Ruther in Russia in 1917. (laughs) So while we have, yeah, so we have some wonderful things to say about Walter Ruther in some of the things he did accomplish that he was. You know, he was cringe. Oh, I have some Where critiques. Is. Yeah, Brandon's got some critiques that we will be getting to, hopefully shortly. <laughs> I mean, I've got some critiques of Khrushchev, but that's kind of off topic. Also, also fair. Yeah, <laughs> also fair. I have 
Yeah. He deserves play. Wait, if Khrushchev uh, liked him, does that mean that, like, Stalin, or didn't like him, does that mean Stalin might have been down with him? I, I don't <laughs> Yeah, know. highly doubt. I doubt that. <laughs> okay, so after JFK had his head blown off, Johnson quickly turned to Walter for, quote-unquote, help. And this request was answered by Walter. Walter had real influence with a president of the United States in Kennedy, and he didn't want to give that up right? Why would he? This was the whole point of getting into bourgeois politics. All of the sacrifice, all of the holding back, it was to get into this position. He was in the room with the fucking president. Okay, this was the fucking dream for the labor movement. LBJ called Walter up pretty much as soon as he had been sworn in, and he begged Walter for his support, no matter what. And Walter was happy to oblige. So he signed on the metaphorical dotted line, but he must have misread the fine print. This was not a two-way street by any stretch of the imagination. Walter got to speak with LBJ often, but it was mostly just Johnson talking Walter into supporting just about everything he did. The decades of experience and massive negotiations, all worth nothing, it seems, when he wanted to negotiate anything with the president. This is kind of partially where that that question I raised at the top, what is it all for? You know, what is it worth to be in the room with a president of the United States if the president's going to talk you into, like, supporting bullshit? You know, what, what was the point? Yeah, and I think this is the part in, um, in part one uh, where I called uh, Walter Ruther uh, a cuck or LBJ's yeah. bitch or something like that. Yeah. So... Not inaccurate. (laughs) So when LBJ wanted to escalate the ongoing Vietnam War with combat troops, he asked Walter for his crucial support. As LBJ explained, and you can like hear recordings of this in that documentary, which we did link in the show notes, although I have discovered that even our current link is no longer free. So I I think I found it on archive.org. So... Okay. Oh, no, that was a different one. Never mind. I'll see if I can find a copy of it. Yeah, it was on YouTube when we started this recording, uh, Brothers on the Line. It's a movie worth watching, but yeah, uh, not free anymore. I don't think. Unless we can find it. It might be on some streaming service for free, like maybe Canopy, like the the library thing. I'll I have actually, to double check on that. I, che- I checked yesterday. Uh, it's only uh, on Amazon Prime for... Yeah, a few dollars. So I was very disappointed. It almost feels like there should be some sort of theory about how capital tends to co-opt anti-capitalist uh, <laughs> things. <laughs> nah. Yeah. You know, I think I really want to go buy a Che Guevara t-shirt on Amazon right now. <laughs> That's based as fuck, bro. <laughs> no. No, no, no. Okay, anyway. As long as it's made in China. In, in that documentary oh. and others... Um, you can, they, they pretty much all have this, like, I, I, I don't know how they got it, but a recording of this fucking phone call between, uh, LBJ and Walter, where he's like asking him to support him in the Vietnam war, which was obviously super unpopular with the left and with working people at the time. And LBJ said, and I quote, you know, I ain't no goddamn fascist. And then he went on with blah, 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 hey, blah. Pause. Yeah. I don't think that the era that we're discussing was maybe uh, any sort of utopia, 
But can we at least reminisce about a time when the president was actively against fascism? <laughs> yeah, right. Jesus. Um, well, at least so, in word. I mean, yeah, yeah. Like he would openly be like, "I'm not a goddamn fascist." What his actions did were, Seriously. you know, that's another thing. But which my the next completely valid. I just I, I long for even the lip service on the matter, <laughs> right? <laughs> And Connor, I mean, LBJ recorded every goddamn thing, like almost as much as Nixon. Like, there's a recording out there of him uh, ordering new pants and like asking the tailor, like, you know, like let out the ass a little bit because I got fat or something like that. You know, like <laughs> there's all kinds of bullshit about him. <laughs> uh, speaking of Nixon, I d- it didn't find a place in my notes, but Nixon, as early as 1960 was very wary of Walter Ruther. He was, he did not like Walter and he thought Walter was a huge threat, much more than any fucking democratic politician. And he, you know, there was some quote like, you know, Oh my God, when, when it was, when he was being considered for vice president, you know, and had involvement with Kennedy, uh, Nixon, even at the time in 1960 was like, you know, it would be worse than anything the Soviet union could ever do for a president of the United States to be beholden in any way to a political boss like Walter Ruther. So as much as we have criticisms of Walter, he did scare the shit out of the right. So, you know, he did some things right. To be fair, uh, Nixon was paranoid about everything. Yes. But (laughs) he was maybe right about this one. Yeah. So anyway, that was it was politically toxic sort of to have Walter um in that kind of position. So like I said, didn't make it into my notes, but yeah, even Nixon did see that even at the time. But anyway, so he said, you know, I'm no goddamn fascist. And of course the next line I I wrote is perhaps that was true, but the difference was negligible when it came to the <laughs> war. Okay. So he asked for Walter's support specifically because he was so respected as a reliable progressive. If Walter supported the war effort, Perhaps it was a just cause after all. Walter had been on the right side of most issues previously, from the public perspective at least, okay? Not from ours necessarily or the communists in the union, but from the public, he was pretty reliably progressive. So why would this be any different? Walter thought this would earn him some serious capital with the president as well. Now, that's a very valuable IOU to have, right? Hey, I supported you in this fucking horrific thing you wanted to do it's time to pay up now it might be a nice arrangement and it might be valuable capital if it wasn't going to be paid in monopoly money you see the longer walter remained loyal to lbj's every whim the more it would take to break with the president the more he wanted to hold on to save face it would be incredibly difficult for walter who thought he had done everything right and it steered the labor movement as a whole into this direction to come to terms with the fact that he had been wrong, that he had made a mistake. How many movement leaders have been plagued by the same problem, going along with what doesn't work just to save face? How many movement leaders, even Walter's family and closest allies, began to wonder what the hell Walter was waiting for? They knew he was trying to walk a tight rope, but for fuck's sake, come on. Walter seemed to know that he was on the wrong side, too. He didn't know how to change course, though. So, like, this position was fucking toxic for him. But he had done it to 
earn some points with the president, which seems like a very important thing to do. If you can get a, a, a dedicated labor organizer like Walter to have the president's ear and to be owed something by that president, I mean, that should be worth something, right? You'd think. You would think. So it, uh, it didn't work out. You know, Walter pretty much stayed on through most of the war. It, it wasn't until the very end that he really did start to come out against the war. He had started kind of like softly being critical of it. Um, but it wasn't until right before his death, he really said, Hey, I'm going to be against this shit now. And that was when Nixon was already in the presidency. So like he never betrayed Lyndon B. Johnson and like that sucks. He was LBJ's bitch the whole fucking time. And like, I don't want to understate how much Walter was involved with the LBJ administration Despite not having any official position within uh, the administration, Walter spoke with LBJ weekly. Weekly. They talked all the fucking time. Walter was, to some extent, he was trying. I don't want to pretend that, like, Walter wasn't trying to do something, but, like, he wasn't effective at it. And he, I think LBJ knew this, and it seemed apparent that, like, he was perfectly willing to exploit the fact that Walter didn't really have an easy escape. Now, that's a lot of doom and gloom. Um, it wasn't all bad. Uh, LBJ did pass some halfway decent legislation on a wide range of issues, most importantly on civil rights. But of course, that legislation came from public pressure more so than like Democrats. LBJ did get through some public spending programs like Medicare, Medicaid, and some education programs, um, all as part of his Great Society initiative. And it was like his New Deal, just not quite as good because we don't talk about it today so much. So this was like LBJ's Build Back Better plan, but it actually passed is the is the difference there. Well, it's because he didn't have a gosh darn Joe Manchin come up the works. <laughs> they hadn't invented the parliamentarian yet. Well, and so it's interesting. Um, things were just different back then. It, like just genuinely things were different. So Johnson was trying to get uh, related legislation through to address the crippling poverty in the U.S., which he called the war on poverty. Most most of us have all heard of that. Um, now, this is all decent stuff, um, which Walter likely had a lot of influence in, but probably would have happened with or without him. This legislation was kind of just needed for the time. And this was during a time when even Democrats were expected to actually fucking pass legislation, which is just something that seems impossible today. I mean, we haven't seen we haven't seen anything like that. But uh, at, in the 60s, Democrats did have some expectation to pass something, even if it was lukewarm bullshit. Like there was something that had to be done. So, yeah, a little bit of a different time. And uh, this is a good time to point out uh, how successful the U.S. was at addressing poverty. <laughs> sorry Wait, uh, yeah that's the joke <laughs> I thought you were serious for a second Like, <laughs> no that's the joke you got me, that's bro. the joke so I want to compare that to like socialist countries that have had programs addressing poverty which mm -hmm. people can be critical of past attempts to build socialism or present ones whatever when they address poverty mm -hmm. I mean there's no fucking contest this was the war on poverty it happened in you know, the, the mid 60s what the fuck did it do? Nothing. Jack shit. Capitalism 
inherently relies on poverty. It has to create desperate people willing to work for bullshit. It, it, there's no, there's yeah. no way around that. So yeah. 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 I did want to just kind of take that little, that little shot there at it, but like, it is pretty stark how like a socialist country is like, Hey, we have some poverty. We'd like to fix it. And then they like do. And then people are like, Oh, it's so shitty there. And I'm like, I mean, they had a lot of success. Here's a five-year plan and a 10-year plan. Oh, look, we achieved all of those. Actually, we beat them a little bit. And then everybody in the West is like, but at what cost? <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> you have, we have homeless people here. I mean, come on. It's, it's just so pathetic. Well, even like the, uh, even like the, the New Deal or the, the GI Bill, like, wasn't really, didn't really help black people. You know, like, no. I just finished reading um, uh, Hammer and Ho. And like all the Alabama <laughs> communists were like, fuck the New Deal, fuck uh, FDR, you know, this is not working for us. Like, <laughs> yeah, because it was just in control of local officials so much. And they were okay. Racist well, if the New Deal wasn't trying to help poor rural black people, then who was? Uh, <laughs> the answer is the Communist Party. You, I, you've read the same book I have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, read Hammer and Ho. It's a good book. Sorry, go ahead. No, so, I mean, really. I'm just kind of trying to hit home the fact that Walter made a huge investment and he, he led the whole labor movement in this direction to get involved in this. And he got in that he got to the top. You, you can't get any higher than talking directly to the fucking president and yeah. where to get us, you know, some legislation that would have happened with or without him. You know, it, it's not, it's not a stellar record here. So, the other thing that Walter comes up in a lot is in the fight for civil rights. So this is a pretty complex issue when it comes to Walter. And Brandon's going to have some things to say about that. So, oh, yeah. Good. I do want to say, you know, while we may have some serious critiques of him, he did do a lot. OK, he was not like bad on this issue per se or not too bad. I should should clarify I want to preface my whole argument with one thing, which is I can criticize him now from the perspective of having learned a lot from a lot of the things that he did. If you believe in praxis, then you know that that's the way to go about it. He did the things that he did. A lot of them were bad and didn't even play out well with with the left in his era but there's a certain extent where I recognize and respect the fact that you have to make the mistakes to learn from them. Yeah. And he did try. I mean, there's, there's no, there's no way to say that Walter didn't care and that he didn't try. He did both very much. It just wasn't always correct. So Walter was always a strong crusader for the cause of civil rights and meaningful racial equality. This goes all the way back to his childhood, which we discussed, you know, uh, however, eight, 8,000 episodes ago. Walter's support for black workers never wavered. However, his support wasn't always perfect. He didn't always see the full spectrum of thought within the civil rights movement and didn't seriously engage with criticism of his approach. But he was serious about fighting for racial equality. He marched with Martin Luther King in Selma, Birmingham, Montgomery, and Jackson. And when King and others were jailed in Birmingham, Alabama, and King authored his famous letter for, from the Birmingham jail, 
Ruther arranged $160,000 for the protesters' release. Objectively, a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he also helped organize and finance the March on Washington uh, on August 28th, 1963, delivering remarks from the Lincoln Memorial shortly before King gave his historic I Have a Dream speech. He served on the board of directors for the NAACP, which feels kind of weird to me today, but it was <laughs> a different time, different approach. Yeah, yeah. It was important to get white people in the movement at the time. Feels weird to me today, though. Definitely. And, um, it, another thing I learned, um, or a couple things I learned from Hammer and Ho is um, like Bull Connor, who was, um, I, I think he was like chief of police in, in Montgomery during yeah. the civil rights period. He was also back in the 30s and 40s, like, you know, fucking with communists. And yeah, like he w- he had the same job for 30 years or whatever. So he was he was fucking with the the civil rights movement for 30 years. Of course. And also, <laughs> it, it's pretty funny to read the uh, criticisms of the NAACP from the Alabama Communist Party. They're like, these are a bunch of like bourgeois, like ineffective <laughs> assholes or whatever. So nice. Dude, um, it, it, from that perspective, it's really interesting because that whole book, like the crux of it is that like what the NAACP had like a few hundred members in Alabama at the time as to where the Communist Party had like 50,000. Yeah. Yeah. Probably a reason for that. But yeah, the reason for it is the NAACP cared about black business owners. Yeah. Mm. And the Communist Party cared a little bit about someone else. Yeah. Like they were trying to organize like sharecroppers unions and shit like that, like in the 30s. Hell yeah. 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 So under Walter's leadership, the UAW donated $75,000 in 1954. So again, this is not entirely just the 60s. I want to be clear. It's not like he jumped on the bandwagon in the 60s. Walter was always putting resources to this, including in the like 1950s. He he was not like late to the fight. So they donated 75000 in 1954 to help underwrite the NAACP's efforts led by Thurgood Marshall before the Supreme Court in the landmark case of Brown v. Board of Education. According to King, uh, Ruther sent letters to all his local unions in 1957 requesting members to attend and provide financial support to the prayer pilgrimage for freedom in Washington, D.C. The March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom was held in Washington, D.C. on Wednesday, August 28, 1963. The protests sought to advocate for the civil and economic rights of African Americans. Uh, Ruther helped organize the march along with other civil rights leaders. Originally, the march was planned to take place outside the Capitol building, but Ruther, however, persuaded other organizers to move the march to the Lincoln Memorial. He believed the Lincoln Memorial would be a less threatening to Congress, which is a pretty lame-ass thing to consider, of course, <laughs> and the occasion would be more appropriate underneath the gaze of Abraham Lincoln's statue. The committee, notably Rustin, who I uh, don't know who that is, but whatever, agreed to move the site on the condition that Ruther paid so for we should it. touch on that. What? Yeah, let's touch on it. Bayard Rustin, I don't know a ton about him, but I know a little bit specifically because there's a biopic being filmed about him here in Pittsburgh right now. Oh, really? Oh, okay, cool. And, you know, I have, I'm being uh, an IOTC now, like I have a lot of friends who are working on that show. And so he's, he's actually like an interesting counterpart to Walter Ruther because he was a civil rights leader 
who was at the time a socialist and a member of like the socialist party that later became the social Democrats, blah, 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 really like milk toast. Fuck. Like I've not, I don't know everything there is about him. I've, I've read some brief synopses. He kind of makes like MLK look far left. And now I, not to say that MLK didn't have some pretty like rad leftist leanings, but this dude was a Zionist, mm. like which I don't mm. really know enough about like the history of of Zionism to know exactly how bad of a position that was in the sixties, but it wasn't great. Yeah, um, yeah. I and mean, so was Stalin briefly. So I mean, we cut people a little bit of slack, but yeah, like I don't know when I say I don't know the history well enough. Like when were when was like the first Intifada? Uh. In the forties, yeah. Think? So none of us know, but like uh, he, he was he was uh, a big like civil rights leader for like uh, gay rights and things like that. So like he had some good stuff. But he was like super anti black nationalism, like r- really like he was kind of cringe. Really, yeah, he. I, I, I like none of his positions resonate well with me, but like I think he's extra interesting because they are making the biopic about him now, and I'm wondering to what extent that's just like. Another attempt at like putting up on a pedestal like a really center like middling civil rights leader. One hundred percent that. Like and you know at the same time like a dude who's in nineteen sixty three is like advocating for equality for like people of color and like gay people and everything. Like I'm not gonna write them off wholesale, but like yeah, he was he was not the be all end all of civil rights leaders at the time. So I find it extra curious that now they're making a movie about him. Yeah, that is kind of weird. Um, yeah, I, I didn't. Yeah, he does seem like a logical counterpart to uh, Walter Ruther, like oh, uh, 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 distinct anti-communist. Like, hmm. interesting. Yeah, hmm. I, I have a quick tangent. I just as we were talking about this, I was thinking I, I really want to write an alternative history novel where uh, Stalin invades uh, Alabama in the '30s to uh, bring about civil rights. That actually would have been cool. Because that was a sort of like there was people in the Alabama Communist Party who were like, please, Stalin, invade us. Based. There's like it's kind of like the uh, (laughs) people that are saying, like, please, G, send send troops to America. (laughs) I just thought that was funny. And I was thinking about it. So sorry. (laughs) Um, All good. So I'm almost uh, I'm almost through here. So anyway, the uh, the committee agreed to move the site on the condition that Ruther pay uh, for a $19,000 sound system so that everyone on the National Mall could hear the speakers and musicians. Ruther and the UAW finance bus transportation uh, for 5,000 of its rank-and-file members, which is not a small number, providing the largest single contingent from any organization. The UAW also paid for and brought thousands of signs for marchers to carry. So, like, when you see videos and, like, documentaries about the civil rights era, Walter was there. And and if you look up pictures... Right next to Joe Biden. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I forgot that he even had that whole... (laughs) Yeah, buddy. I fucking hate liberals. Was it him that claimed that he was like arrested with Nelson Mandela or something? <laughs> yeah, or no, he was arrested protesting uh, Nelson Mandela's imprisonment or stuff. It's just like, no, you weren't, bud. No. <laughs> if anything, he was protesting Nelson Mandela's release. Um, you, you know, which again, tangent. 
for anyone who watches it's always sunny in philadelphia there there is a part there's an episode where uh frank reynolds like would tell stories to people and they're just like dude you're just describing the, the plot to rambo yeah that's rambo like you you were confusing your life with john rambo and that's what joe biden does <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah things look all, everything we see today not everything but like a good chunk of what we see today i hate to say it, you can thank walter ruther's decisions for he tried his best but ugh, it was not the right path man <laughs> so when you see like old documentaries and stuff of civil rights movement and with martin luther king walter is in the background of a lot of those like famous pictures and videos like if you find out like go ahead and go on google look at what walter ruther looks like and you'll start to see him in all these pictures and shit like he as much as like his approach wasn't always the best he was there he was there for all of it and you know he he did he did put a lot of this in, into motion and, and of course like you see the i have a dream speech and just think like five thousand of the people there are from the uaw i mean that's not like a small thing although there were a fuckload of people there but it's so, a big yeah. deal so he did galvanize people for this movement so all this is to say that walter was heavily involved in the movement from early on and he put his money where his mouth was he helped to bring white workers into the movement and got them to understand how important solidarity was to the interests of the whole working class. Like I said earlier, not everyone was entirely satisfied with Walter's approach. Walter was often very focused on trying to move the broader public opinion on so civil rights, uh, sometimes at the expense of racial inequality within his own unions. So that's going to be our cue for Brandon to kind of go into a little bit about the other side of Walter on civil rights and some of the criticism of him. So, so I've basically been waiting for three months for this. Now give me a second. Well, because my cat <laughs> has decided that this is the exact time that he's going to love me the most. <laughs> yep. Uh, I'll be right back. <laughs> that was a nice launch. Okay. So I have a document prepared for this that I think that we're all going to enjoy pretty well. It is Oh, actually, you know, I'm going to do a little bit of background because there's probably a lot of people who are listening to this that have not necessarily listened to our episodes on the Dodge Revolutionary Union movement. So in, in broad strokes, I can't. Mike, have we talked about this in this series yet? I can't even remember. No, we have not. OK, well, be prepared to be fucking stoked on something. Yeah. The Dodge Revolutionary Union movement, for anyone not aware, and that's probably a lot of people because it was not something that's, I think, very well remembered, but it was uh, started out as a subset of the UAW, and it was when some black members of the UAW got together and formed a, an overtly Marxist-Leninist sub-faction within the UAW. And this eventually, like, spread, like... There was the Dodge Revolutionary Union movement, Ford Revolutionary. Um, there's been a lot even that I think are going to be lost to the ages until like someone gets motivated to like really go through some old writings and compile some shit. Because I have found uh, evidence of revolutionary union movements in healthcare throughout different unions throughout the nation. Like it, it spread, but was never a significant thing in a lot of these places but drum and some of their 
like the other revolutionary union movements, this started out in Detroit specifically, had uh, a few hundred members at some points and were doing, you know, reading groups and like all of the typical, like legitimately leftist things that were going on in the 60s. And they specifically had uh, some opinions about Walter Ruther because they were in the UAW. His his actions and the things that he said directly impacted them. So they wrote an open letter to Walter Ruther. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's like four pages long. But I'm going to read their bullet points and like the first paragraph that really like. We've gotten a, even in our criticisms, I feel like we've painted a largely positive picture of Walter Ruther as somebody who was like progressing labor and racial justice in a, a good direction. And I don't think that what I'm about to read invalidates that, but it does give the like the other side of that from the people that were actually on the shop floor doing the work and experiencing what it was like to be in the UAW at the time as a black person. They had five bullet points listed in the opening of the letter that they wanted to state as their specific goals. And that is one, expose the UAW's racist practices Two, expose UAW's sweetheart union practices Three, expose totalitarian control of the UAW by the Ruther machine. Four, present a full list of demands for the redress of grievances. And five, unite all black workers in the struggle to dispose of you and your benchmen and to win workers' control over the union and the shops. Hell yeah. Uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this one paragraph real quick because I feel like it, it sums up what a lot of the letter just sort of expands upon. There's no doubt that the UAW was run by a gang of white racists led by yourself. After 30 years of struggle, the UAW still has an executive board that is 92% white dominated. The skilled trades are still virtually closed to blacks. The international reps are still 95% white and the international staff is 90% white. Black workers are still the last hired, first fired, rarely promoted, and work at the hardest, dirtiest, noisiest, most dangerous jobs in the industry. Many local union leaders openly brag of their affiliations with the Ku Klux Klan, their support for George Wallace, and their contempt for anything black. With over 30 years of movement behind, the UAW has had plenty of time to eliminate racism within its own ranks, yet has chosen not to do so. Yeah. People did not yeah. universally love Walter Ruther. I'll cite the, the book Detroit, I Do Mind Dying as like a really great follow up if you're interested in this, because it's to this day, like the only definitive thing I can find on a lot of the Revolutionary Union movement and the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, which is what that later turned into. But yeah, like I'm of two minds on this in a certain respect in the same way that like this is going to feel like a weird comparison, but bear with me for a moment. A lot of the division in the left on opinions on China is, is it pro-capitalist or is it using capitalism to venture further towards socialism? Yeah. Because a lot of the things that China does do not inherently benefit workers and at times are to the detriment of workers. And that's not me even necessarily making a massive criticism of China because I work 60 hours a week, so I don't have the room to criticize China for making them work 60 hours a week when they're actually a government that's doing positive things for their people. And I'm just doing it to make a bunch of people rich. Yeah. But 
there is an extent to where I wonder if Ruther thought that he was sacrificing the the ben, like the good of the individual workers to produce a larger societal shift. Like, oh, you'll get yours later, so on and so forth. Yes. But I kind of don't give a fuck. Yeah. Because, <laughs> well, he was working on gaining, like, I do, in my heart, think that he was trying to benefit people. But he prioritized getting on the national stage and advocating for these for civil rights leaders when he was ignoring the people he was actually supposed to be accountable to. He, he was yep. out there marching with Martin Luther King Jr. while people in his own union were still fucking afraid of getting lynched at work. Yeah. So what fucking good was he doing? Like, Yeah, and so I, I kind of want to come in here a little bit. <clears throat> and this is what I talk about when I when I'm, what I mean when I'm talking about, you know, what is what is what should union membership even look like? I mean. Why the fuck would you have people who brag about being in the KKK working alongside black workers or, or at all? You know, why are we not educating union membership? Why are we not actually having some consequences for like, okay, look, you're going to do this shit. Uh, we're not going to protect you. You know, why are we protecting racists within our unions, which they do today? You know, and I understand what Walter was doing, and I, I can't take away the fact that he was marching with Martin Luther King. He put his money where his mouth was. He did do a lot of the right stuff. But when it came to his own fucking union, black workers were not being promoted. They were not being treated fairly. And it's like, how much could have changed if you had shown a fucking example of like, Hey, this is what it looks like when you promote black workers. Here's what it looks like when black people are treated with fucking dignity. How much further mm -hmm. would that have gone? How much more popular would Walter be if he had put not even all of his focus within his own union, which is a, obviously, I understand the idea that he was going for the big press. He was trying to deal with the issues in a big way. But like, if you can't also deal with the problems right under your fucking nose, I mean, what good is it? You know, what is it worth? And so these sorts of... Okay, uh, my, my Cars and Comrades people will, will remember this story from our drum episode, but as an example of how truly bad the conditions were in some of these factories, specifically for black people, there was an instance, and I, I believe it was 71 or 72, where... A man came in, I can't remember if he had been fired or if he had just uh, uh, reached his boiling point. He came in to the shop and murdered his boss, a foreman, and was on his way to find a job setter when he was stopped. One person who he was looking for was uh, the union steward because he had made a numerous complaints to the steward about racism in the shop and being targeted. And yeah. the steward had continued trying to help people. Like, I've, I'd read a little bit about him. I don't remember his name off the top of my head. But he actually seemed like he was trying to do a good job and address these grievances. But when he would go to the bosses, they basically told him that if he wanted to keep his job, he was going to need to shut the fuck up. And so he was fearful for his job. 
and had not taken some of the grievances that this man had expressed very seriously. I believe he ended up killing two or three people. When he went to trial, uh, the lawyer that or, or the lawyers that defended him were affiliates with Drum. They weren't on the shop floor, but one of one person had gotten involved with the Revo- uh, League of Revolutionary Black Workers while he was in law school, and he helped on the defense for this man. And they were effectively able to argue that the conditions for black workers in these factories were so appalling, so bad, and so unbearable that you could not logically expect someone to be treated that way and there not be an instance like this. The man was acquitted. A fucking black man who came into a factory in 1970 and killed three white men was acquitted because they were able to prove that the working conditions were that bad for black people in that shop. Holy shit. Yeah. Jesus, dude. So, so yeah, tell me, like, like yes, Walter Ruther is out there advocating, and he, like, I will absolutely not question a lot of the work that he did very early on in his career, but, like, what good is the union leader that no longer knows what the shop floor looks like? You jogged my memory of something uh, that happened in 2019 in Toledo, Ohio, where some uh, someone hung a noose uh, near a black person's workstation. I remember that. And wrote whites only on a sign. So um, this kind of shit still happens, you know, in uh, I guess it was 2018. Excuse me. So, yeah. And so, you know, kind of just like, what is the point of organizing workers? If this, these are the people you're organizing, like, isn't it worth something to like, be able to not represent some people? And I'm sure there's, some legal questions with this, and I don't understand all of them. I'm sure I will at some point because we'll be doing this podcast for a little bit. But, you know, is it worth organizing these sorts of people without actually having any expectations for them changing their fucking behavior? I mean, like, how can you have union members who can't even treat each other with respect? I mean, like, how do you function that way? And so how do you work up the fucking nerve to be out in front of cameras, to be thinking you're the biggest, baddest fucking labor leader when your own union is, I mean, ineffectual. And and the other thing is, Walter Ruther ran the UAW, as this letter even says, like a fucking dictatorship. So this is like, Walter thought that he was doing the right thing, that his approach was correct, right? He led the entire labor movement into this political sphere the way that he wanted. And, you know, it's like he does all the leadership, but like there wasn't dissent allowed. It was Walter's way or the highway. Now he thought he was correct. And I think through our study, we can determine he, he meant well, he had the best of intentions, but he was not correct. You know, in, in, in many ways, in some ways he was correct, but in many, many ways he was not. And so, it's, go ahead, Brandon. Uh, well, real, real quick, uh, before I forget, because I don't know the best place to include this. In, in Detroit, I Do Mind Dying, I r- remember reading, and I cannot find it again for the life of me, but the George Revolutionary Union movement was, at the time, actively complaining about the construction of a resort. The UAW right, was funding... This. yeah. They were funding a resort. It, I, I started reading more about it after we recorded that episode. So their, their complaint was that effectively they were spending 
exorbitant amounts of money on constructing this resort that was going to be open to union members, which sounds super cool, except that it was going to be something like if everyone in the union wanted to go, it was going to take like decades for all of them to get a chance to. So it very quickly became apparent that they were constructing a resort for leadership and higher ups and people with any sort of authority. And that resort got built and remained open up until fairly recently. I think it was sold. I I read about this and forgot some of the history because, but it was the, the black Lake resort. And it's actually hard to find information on the construction of it. But yeah, there were, there were specifically people who were like, Hey, you're spending millions of dollars on constructing this. And we still are fearing for our lives at work. Like, and, and and so building off of that, Maybe today is a little bit different, but at the time, and perhaps in the future, unions had fucking money. There was no shortage of fucking cash for the UAW. They could funnel money into civil rights activities, into political campaigns, into apparently building fucking resorts. So there was no shortage of money. So then the question becomes, what about the strike funds? How could this money have been spent differently to get gains for the workers? to actually get something more how could this money have been used to hire i don't know industrial saboteurs or you know funding people to just be spies for the union or anything that would have been far fucking cheaper than building a goddamn resort imagine just imagine if they had instead of building a resort got their workers enough money to afford to go away for a while and the fucking pay time off to do it that's so much fucking easier. <laughs> and so once upon a time, unions had money and they can do that again. And when they have money again, how should they be spending it? And I think that is something we're going to have to consider uh, going forward. And it cannot look the same way it did in the UAW. Me, me and my friends have been discussing that actually locally just because we don't have a union hall. Our local is, is has been so small that up until recently, like a lot of things were not options for us. And now more and more people are asking questions about how the local money is being spent and why we don't even have a union hall, like why, why there are not really resources coming back. Because because money from the union, like I love the idea of them building a resort that all of the fucking members can go to. But that's stupid. It's no, like your, your job as the union is to better the lives of workers, lobby the government for, for better labor law, fucking, you know, even that's still like pretty, pretty fucking bourgeois, but like training centers, union halls, places to organize, like everything you can to give workers the tools to better themselves. And they built a fucking resort. Yeah. And, and, you know, if the communists were in charge, do you think they would have built a resort? <laughs> At this point, my notes have now ended and Brandon has gone through most of his thing. But for anyone who is interested, especially your guys, listeners who aren't necessarily into cars so much, we did do a, I think it was a three-part series on the revolutionary union movements within Detroit and the auto plants. And mm. That in in and of itself is a long, complex story, a lot like this, and there's many facets to it. So if you want to learn more, there is more to it. But 
there was another side of Walter. So like I can have some amount of praise for Walter. And I was trying, you know, of course, I'm trying to present that nice side of it, knowing what Brandon's got kind of up his right. sleeve here. So yeah. Well I I can take a, a very hard line like fucking tanky stance against this guy who did a lot of good for workers, but I, I think that the constructive thing to do is to look at his failures and successes. And as we've talked about, or at least alluded to throughout this series is that the, I think the conclude the conclusion that I've come to and, you know, Mike, you and I tend to agree on a lot of things. So I'm already pretty far into just arming and, you know, taking control of things, whatever based Walter Ruther tried as hard as he possibly could, as hard as anyone possibly could to work within the system to change it for the better. On a reformist path, yeah. On a reformist path. And what he showed us was that it's not going to work. Because to work mm -hmm. within bourgeois politics, you have to make concessions to capital that you should not have to make. That you're going to, to that they're going to ask you to make concessions that they do expect you to make. I, why any union has ever made a concession to capital is fucking beyond me. Because the second you give that to them, you're never getting it back. So, you know, he, he did 30 years worth of work so that everyone that I know is either working overtime or two jobs to pay the fucking bills. Where did he get us? Yeah. And so I think I do think that he was a good person doing his best. But he followed the wrong path. And we only know that because people like him followed that path. And now we can see reformism doesn't work. Yeah. At least yeah. not in the long term. You know, it always gets eroded. I mean, any any gains that he did have in his lifetime, even if they were, they weren't even all that great in his lifetime. You know, as soon as the neoliberal turn came in the 70s, you know, all that got eroded. So... Yeah, I mean, I remember reading one time about like all of the policies from the New Deal and how long they lasted. And it was basically fully walked back within a few years. But it, it's still heralded as like this uh, America being on the brink of socialism. Oh, FDR was the greatest yeah. socialist leader, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, like, no, fuck you. Like they gave you just enough to shut you the fuck up. And then they took that back and then more. Yeah. And that's that's the moral of this fucking story is is that anything that they give you, they're going to take back tenfold. Yeah. And I think one of the other morals of the story is Walter was fundamentally he was a good and decent person. And he literally risked his life for all of this. I mean, he was under threat from capitalists, the government. He was hounded by the FBI. And it was all in. A, you know, he was still pursuing a pretty reformist path. He did everything. He followed all of the rules, did everything right. And like, it still wasn't enough. And, and like, he had the best of intentions. Like, I don't want people to think he did not have good intentions. He absolutely had great intentions. And so he should be lauded for that because at the time, most people did not have similar intentions. But those intentions were enough. You can be a milk toast sock dem or a fucking tanky, and to the people in power, you're a communist. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, yeah. So you might as well be a tanky. At least they get shit done. But then also to the people that you're serving, you could not be doing enough. Like Walter Ruther was simultaneously the hardcoreist Soviet unionist, like 
dedicated communist that loves Stalin, but also a fucking racist to his own union subordinates and everything. It's like, you can be both at the same time. My takeaway from this episode has been, and it seems like you guys keep reaffirming it, whether we get on a tangent talking about the steady decline of America and America being unable to conquer the algorithm of maximizing short-term profits over human life or anything as far as like the future existence of the country itself, or whether we're talking about Walter Ruther and his motivations and his personal feelings, whether he's actually personally a racist or whether he's just personally trying to do what he can and is just being stifled by literally people breaking into his house and trying to kill him and his family. So it's like we can sit here and hem and haw about his personal motivations because that's good content for our podcast and we should continue to do it for a few more episodes. But also what the big takeaway from that should be that you should have leaders for your organizations because that obviously is effective because we can see he was able to do a lot of work in his time as a leader. But also, you should have complete transparency in those organizations, because if the people below Walter and Victor and everybody in this organization, if people below Ruther have been able to see why he made the decisions that he made, just like if he'd been able to see 50 years in the future and see like concessions that he made to the people that he made them to, if he'd be able to see the table that that set for labor in the future, he obviously wouldn't have done that. Yeah. But then also, at the time, the people below him probably would have seen him making those decisions and said, no, we know that that's going to not turn out well for us. So like the collective wisdom would have... I think probably guided him in a path that is more conducive to what we would want to see today. You know what I mean? Like all the things that seem so hindsight 2020 for us probably would have been just as clear to them at the time. And so that's a reason for the transparency. But still, I don't want that to sound like an anarchist thing. Like we need to have no hierarchies because oh, hold on, that now. hold on. Like, <laughs> no hierarchy is great. Chaz, we, want the, <laughs> we want the UAW, but we want like, transparency. We want the not the chat. Like, so actually, uh, I got I got to I got to take a couple points that you said that I think are super important to harp on a little bit and well said. And so I, I want to point out, ah, fuck, I've had a little too much to drink. Damn it. I'm losing it. I'm losing it, but I'm on beer five. Okay. Well, you're, um, you know what? The Malert is what's getting me, but I know I've got a point here, so I'm just going to go ahead and pull out right into it and hope I get it right. One of the things that we come across with the Walter Ruther story is that he thought he was correct. And so he ran the union with kind of an iron fist. He didn't have any transparency and he didn't have the kind of democratic input from below that was necessary for him to run this union in an effective way. He thought he was doing it correct, but he wasn't. And, and so Connor, I, you just fucking nailed it. Oh, hell yeah. See, Malert for the win. Well, let's hold back on that. <laughs> but so like by doing this, if you don't have transparency and if you don't have the kind of input from below, you will run astray, whether you mean to or not. Obviously, you don't mean to run astray. So in this case, like Walter could have averted some of this by letting popular elections happen within the UAW. And this is really important news today. This is applicable today. The UAW recently had an election for changing their setup to one member, one vote. Now, to me, that's what a vote is. So I don't know what the fuck they had before. I'm going to be real honest with you. I don't know what they had before, but they had some. I read about it and it was more of a delegate system. Yeah, it was a delegate system that was not even really much of a good delegates. It was like the Electoral College, but for a union, it was bullshit. And so this is the kind of system that Walter was using to maintain control, to create what the 
League of Revolutionary Black Workers called the Ruther Machine. We we in our drama episode we discussed instances where the Ruther Machine intervened and got police involved because drum were trying to organize their own representation to get like voted into like union uh, uh, positions and they shut down the union hall yeah. like to prevent these people from having meetings from organizing and there is a lot of suspicion and this is like buried in the annals of history that like some of those union elections were pretty dodgy in favor of ruther backed candidates yeah it's, it's too much of an attitude of, I know what's good for you, trust me. And this is where my, <clears throat> I'm going to sneak in that little anarchist bit. This is why. Yeah, I was going to say, that sounds like it's oh, a really bigotist tanky thing. Hold on, hold on. I think when it comes to communist states, which I'm totally, honestly, I'm fine with. I'm not the typical blah, 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 whatever, bullshit, it's a state. Well, whatever may be necessary, I'm fine with. But transparency in government, in unions, in our movements, transparency is fucking important. And so when you take like a Soviet Union that couldn't always be transparent, but sometimes they're just like, I don't know, be fucking transparent. Like be, if you are this fucking clear, the CIA can't run a PSYOP that you're not. If you're just like, no, no, we, we told our people what we're doing. We were super clear. If you do that and you provide the evidence, the CIA has nothing against you. If you're not like Walter, who give, gives a shit about, yeah, whatever, I went to the Soviet Union, wasn't so fucking bad. Call me a communist. I don't give a fuck. I'm going to get gains for the working people. That's hard to argue with. I mean, when we, when it's when we, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a car analogy right here. This is, this is what happens when I'm drinking the Malort. It's, <laughs> it's like committing to a drift, right? If you commit to something and you're going to do it right and you're going to be transparent, your enemies have no recourse. If you are upfront, clear, and you have intention, what the fuck are they going to do? If you actually commit, which if you don't commit, if you're drifting and you don't commit to a corner, you're going to crash, right? The thing you have to do is like you have to hit the fucking gas when you think you're going to crash. You have to hit the gas, not the brake. Because if you hit the brake, you are going to crash. It's counterintuitive. It's sometimes when you are your most scared or when you feel like you have to cover something up or you can't give up power or you can't let oh the bottom have a say in how your union's running. You have to understand that, you know, no, the workers know best. You have to just go with it. You have to commit to your path and fucking go with it. And when you do that, it works better. So that's my little rough car analogy. I like it. Makes sense. I don't know how to drift, but it seems like it makes sense. The way that I've seen people do it, it seems like it. Yeah. You can fuck it up very easily if you don't hit the gas confidently at the right time. If you, yeah, you can't be. So here's the thing. You can't be scared when you're drifting. Like you have to just accept like, you know what? I can crash and I'll be okay. And then you go for it. You have to go all out because if you hold back, that's when you will crash. And I think what the story of Walter Ruther is kind of exactly that story if you don't go all in if you are not committed to following the path all the way you're gonna crash if you're trying to please too many fucking people you're holding back you're 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 going half-assed yeah look at what's gonna happen and so i think the counterpoint though to the 
extreme transparency and letting everybody know about every concession that you're making and the reason that you're making it so that even if you are making some revisionist quote unquote concession to whoever you're making it to, that way you can at least let the people below you know why you're doing it. And then they may or may not agree with you. I think then the problem you're running into, like if I'm a ma- like, is then you're going to get canceled by your own people. If they say like, look, you shouldn't make this concession. It's like, then what? Then does your organization then become completely doctrinaire, like to the book and then never makes any concessions and then gets nothing done. You know what I mean? And I feel like that's kind of the paradox that we're all in is that you, if you're trying to organize anything, you kind of have to be so perfect that it always toes the line in every situation and survives all these pitfalls. And the ones that succeed and do that and accomplish the most you hear about and all the ones that fall to the wayside, you do not. And that's kind of just the, well, the position we're in. So I would say we can all take different positions on this, but I think if we had the answer to this, we'd have global communism right now. No, I think that's the problem. I think that's exactly what you're hitting. It's not universal. Yeah. But I mean, through this story, I think there's a lot to be learned. And, you know, we're not here to condemn Walter Ruther as like this awful person. We're having laughs. We're calling him cringe, whatever. But like Walter was kind of the perfect example of like he, he did some things right, did some things wrong. He really did try his best. And like we now have because of his mistakes, we have something to learn from. And I propose that that is a part of the reason that Walter has been erased from history. This is part of the reason that you, no one and the left knows who Walter Ruther is. Okay. There is so much to learn from his story. And the fact that, and like, I think that there is a real uh, concern that people, that we may learn from his story. And I think that's what leads to no one knowing who he is. And so I think that this is, that's why this is an important story. And that's why we're on part six in a two part series. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that we're bad at getting to the point. We're very bad at getting to the point. Yeah, well. So I think I'm saying this now. I think it's only going to be seven parts. I think we can finish it up in the next. I think. You said that on part three, too. So yeah, we'll I know. If on part three he said he thinks it's only going to be seven parts, then he was... No, no, no. Job. He said he had one more. <laughs> Excuse me. All right. Well, no, I mean, with that being said, let's wrap it up there. And thank you again, Connor. I mean, yeah, I really, like, as much as, like, um, I don't know, you guys may think that I'm just, like, blowing smoke up your ass, like, saying that I'm fine with doing as many parts as this takes. Like, I really am. Especially because, like, you have done all the hard work of the show prep that goes into this. Because... For people who don't make podcasts, you guys may not realize that there are two hard parts that go into podcasting. It is the editing afterwards, and it is the show prep beforehand. And yeah. Connor has done half of that for me, so I'm more than happy to let you do the other half if you let me do the second half, because I'm a control freak about the second half, so <laughs> that's fine with me. Yeah, Great. There's, a, there's a reason why we don't put out an episode every week, you know? Yeah, we yeah. had to stop doing that. It's a god. Yeah. <laughs> I'm such a glutton for punishment, I decided to do two episodes a week, and then I have not held to it once in the entire, like, six to eight months since we started the Patreon. And, said we're and that's pretty much out of Walter. And we're going to try and close it up with some takeaways, which we kind of did a little bit um, in this last bit here, but uh, there's more. It's a long story. It's complicated. And uh, I don't know, for anyone listening who may be in film school or something, just saying, this should be a movie someday. So, seriously, fucking movie. Make it happen. And, and so, the one about uh, Stalin invading Alabama. I want to see that movie too. Yeah, 
Brian, I did want to say, like, that's something I really wanted to go down a rabbit hole on, but I didn't want to for time's sake. But, like, <laughs> if you ever want to uh, maybe change the medium that you want to do, because I know you said you wanted to write it as, like, a short story or possibly a longer book. But, like, if you want to make that into, like, um, we could do, like, a role-playing game themed with that and then make it into, like, a multi-episode podcast series. And we could, like, talk about Stalin invading Alabama and, you know, showing people that actually... Uh, you get more out of an economic system if your government actually works for you. Who knew? But uh, yeah, uh, that's an idea. I don't know. That is quite I mean, an idea. <laughs> I don't know how that would work exactly, but I'm I'm on board if if we want to do that. I do. I mean, it's just something that, like, when I say I'm going to write a short story about something, that never happens. But then if yeah, I say same. I'm going to write a podcast episode about it, it happens. Okay. And then if I can find a way to like make that like lively at the same time, that, that's just me. So I'm just transmogrifying my experience to you. So so but, yeah, writing a story can be a lot, but if we write a D&D campaign, I'm just saying that could work. And it does work well for podcasts in my experience. Yeah. I have been enjoying the, the Chapo D&D thing where they're um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> doing the weird. I dislike that, but I also understand why it's fun for them to do. So yeah. I would do it. Yeah. There you go. I mean, I don't, I don't talk about it much on this show cause it's not relevant to any of the stuff, but I'm a tabletop gamer too. So like that's right up my alley. Fair enough. I'm not even, gaming, but I would so. for the show. Yeah, <laughs> I've never done role playing, so it'd be interesting. Sweet. I have a 40k army that's either very respectable or very not respectable, depending on whether you're uh, judging <laughs> me or not. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, you, you and Sterling would get along well. I just bought a 3D printer. I'll print up a little like uh, uh, Stalin figurine for, for my character. <laughs> Hell yeah. yeah, we can have Hosea Hudson and Bull Connor and I forget who else was involved with that whole thing. But yeah. <laughs> well, um, that's a very good potential idea in the future. Um, on that note, uh, I would like to plug some various things that I can happen to remember, uh, which is our Instagram, which is Cars and Comrades podcast. Uh, and then we also have a backup, which is also very important to follow because you know, Instagram is shitty sometimes. And I like to make fun of nah. I like to make fun of conservatives at times. And so that can get kind of iffy. <laughs> uh, sometimes my account gets real like, hey, I don't know if I can post or not. So um, mm -hmm. our backup is Cars and Comrades podcast two. Very simple and nothing to it. Um, you can also follow us at Twitter and Facebook, which at some point I'll start updating eventually someday yeah, i posted a couple things on there lately but thank yeah, god I, I... <laughs> <laughs> so much to keep up uh so yeah we're on instagram twitter hexbear reddit and uh yeah give us good reviews and stuff because that helps us we think so great subscribe uh and yes if you are interested in a story about black revolutionary workers organizing in uh auto plants in detroit check out our three-part series on the Dodge Revolutionary Union movement because it's a fucking story. Quite yeah. a story. And and that movie that Drum produced, that is on the internetarchive.org. Um, what was the name of the movie again? Uh, Finally Got the News? Finally Got the News, yep. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's worth watching. Yeah. So that's all our plugs, I think. I'll just do a couple real quick plugs for my podcast. Obviously, check out the Turn Up This podcast if uh, I haven't won over any of your listeners yet. Oh, and, yeah, I forgot. Uh, you guys have a podcast. For our individual... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. 
this you may or may not be on, but <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, obviously, subscribe to the Tone of the Podcast to get uh, other episodes sort of in the same vein as this one. But then uh, for individual hosts, you can check out the uh, Twitter that Sterling runs. That's Twitter slash Tone of the Pod. You can check out Ward's Instagram pages where he posts memes. Those are millennial leftist and millennial Marxist. And he's also on Twitter at Ward Lolly. And then for Cosper, their Patreon is patreon.com slash C-O-S-E-R underscore. Um, I don't have the Patreon subscribers pulled up at the moment, and I haven't updated that list in a while, so I'm going to have to skip that one for now. Then for everything else, check out the Linktree. You can get our t-shirts or become a Patreon at Linktree slash TurnLeftist. And you can follow me on Instagram at TurnLeftist1917 since uh, my backup account got banned. That's so right. I went from having like 30K to 16, now I'm down to two, baby. So yeah, well, <laughs> I'm just going to build that back up slowly but surely. But uh, the shit posting will always continue. So just follow me on my current and my backup always. So yeah, just follow me on TurnLeftist. And for everything else, yeah, like I said, check out the link tree. And that is it. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. That was really a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, thank usual. you. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, sorry I was uh, getting bored. I'm going to go reinstall my exhaust now. <laughs> nice. How <laughs> about that flex plate, buddy? I might go install those shifter cables if it's not too cold in the garage. Nice. Hell yeah. I'm going to go ahead and install some tacos. Bye, everybody. Yeah, it's Bye, Bye. Hey, gentlemen. See you next time. <laughs> I didn't know you had a Toyota. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I fucking wish. All right. Later, guys. Bye. We gonna make you pay five and five, bitch. We make you pay five and water, bitch. We gonna fight racism, not racism, but we gonna fight the solidarity. We said we're not gonna fight capitalism with black capitalism, but we gonna fight the socialism. Amazingly, or not so amazingly, Cuba's crime rate is one of the lowest in the entire hemispheres. Oddly enough, it seems that when people have their basic human needs met, they're less likely to commit crimes. My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're gonna see some serious shit. The free market mythology, it argues that the most ruthless, selfish, opportunistic, greedy, calculating plunderers, applying the most heartless measures in cold-blooded pursuit of corporate interest and wealth accumulation, will produce the best results for all of us. Through something called the invisible hand. <laughs> what are you smiling about? Dude, I almost had you.